Finding Purpose, The Song of My Life, Episode 10, Trouble in Paradise and a Romantic Ending. Welcome back, friends. I hope you enjoyed Thomas's poetic writings about our week in Zion National Park. We felt we had flowed with nature and the whole universe during that week with our friends. We had listened to the sound of Thomas's wooden flute, joining in with the ancient melodies of the cosmos, and then we had meditated in a cave where we sensed that we had a connection with the spirits of the Indians. We couldn't shake off these deep impressions. We knew we wanted to live in the mountains where we could be in tune with Mother Nature. Then, returning to civilization in Oakland, we found that not only our vegetable garden was flourishing, but also the marijuana bushes that Thomas had carefully planted. They were a beautiful sight, at least six feet high, bordering on our backyard fence. We decided to cut some branches off and hang them upside down on our back porch to dry. Now we had not only homegrown vegetables, but also our own marijuana. I personally didn't care so much about smoking all that grass, but I did think the plants looked pretty impressive. We discovered a large leaf with 13 petals, which we were sure must be symbolic of something. I carefully pressed it and put it into a glass frame and hung it on the wall next to our Buddha altar. Thomas had already been exchanging letters with his mother about our special plants. She was very concerned about our lifestyle, which included drugs and not having a proper job. He spent a lot of time in his letters explaining to her that she had no right to judge him because she had no experience in all this. He told her that it was an important part of his search and it was necessary to open his mind to the universe. Besides, he knew that the Indians also used plants like peyote to connect with the spirits in the sky, so this path made perfect sense to him. He had no worries about the law, because it was a regular conversation among our hippie friends that marijuana would soon be legal in California. My parents came to visit one day, and we proudly showed them our vegetable garden, plus the marijuana plants that were hard to miss. They couldn't believe what they were seeing. Then Dad said, this is going to mean trouble, especially since we were living in Oakland. There were lots of police around because of regular crime on the street. Thomas and I were even aware of police cars in the nearby parking lot of the hamburger joint where they would stop for lunch. I can imagine my folks drove home with Dad fuming about how dumb and irresponsible we were. There was no way he could understand how their oldest daughter had gone from being a good girl to a real hippie who had dropped out and was doing dangerous, illegal things. Probably after that incident, they asked their church friends to move our names to the top of the emergency prayer list. Mom invited us over for lunch soon after that, and for sure it was because Dad wanted to have a big talk about our situation. As usual, we all sat in the living room, and this time we were forced to listen to Dad's warnings. He said we were playing with fire by having those plants in the garden, and not only was he angry, but he pleaded with us to dig those plants up and get rid of them. His words were, The police, or neighbors, are bound to see those marijuana plants. Then you will both end up in jail, and Thomas will be deported out of the country. Little did he know that Thomas had also been stealing books and food from the local grocery store. And worst of all, his visa was expired and he had lost his German passport. It was in his leather jacket one day when he spontaneously sold it at the flea market. 
He knew he should get it renewed, but he couldn't be bothered with such trivial things. Of course, Thomas defended his position and was not about to listen or obey my father. It was an awful discussion and it was painful to listen to them because it made me feel that I was stuck in between two men who both loved me. On our way home on the bus, the subject was already turning into an argument between us. I said it would be safer and no big deal just to dig up the plants and throw them away. Why should we take a chance on the police finding them? But Thomas said, using his favorite expressions, that I was just like my parents, negative and paranoid. We had been planning anyway on hitchhiking up into the mountains and camping for a few days. I thought this would be perfect timing, pull up the plants and then leave the city for a while. But as usual in our relationship, Thomas won and the beautiful plants got to continue to grow happily in our garden. Sometime after all these talks, Thomas had gone to the local supermarket to get some meat for the stray dog that we had recently taken in. On his way out of the store, he was stopped by the manager and asked to show what he had under his jacket, a steak. The first thing he did was ask for his ID, and of course, he didn't have one, so they had to report him to the police. You can imagine my response when he came home and casually told me what happened. How was he going to explain to the police that he lost the passport and didn't bother to get a new one? With all the grass he was smoking, he was living in his own world, convinced that the gods of the universe were on his side. The next day, he had to report into the local precinct to fill out a form for a new passport. In the process, the police discovered that his visa into the United States had already expired. They explained to him about the process they would have to go through to sort this out. Maybe this would have been a simple procedure, but added to that, they also had the theft report. The result was they gave him a court hearing date. Then I really panicked and insisted that we get rid of the plants, but Thomas was persistent that we shouldn't have to bend because of society's rules or hang-ups. In the end, he could always talk me into believing and trusting him. This incident caused us to consider what would we do if we actually got arrested. Thomas suggested that we would not call my parents or get them involved. If we ended up in jail, we agreed that we would not eat any unhealthy non-vegetarian food. Our philosophy boiled down to the idea that holiness was the result of our own discipline. Therefore, in eating pure foods, this would bring us closer to God. On one Wednesday morning in June, Thomas wanted to go to San Francisco, and I needed to go to the health food store. We said goodbye and both took the bus to our individual destinations. I went to the food mill up in the Oakland Hills where you could buy products like whole wheat flour, brown rice, and soybeans by the pound. I came home with a splurge for the day, fresh carrot juice. As I arrived home and walked up on the porch to our front door, two policemen immediately joined me. They asked if I lived there and said they had to come in and inspect our house. They said there had been a report that there was marijuana growing in our backyard. They told me that if I was cooperative, I wouldn't have to go to jail. This fateful event took place on Wednesday, June 7, 1971, as I found in looking at our old letters to Thomas's mother. 
I was a little scared, but I decided to play it cool and be friendly and helpful. First, they went out in the garden to inspect the plants. They asked me if they belonged to us and if we were selling the grass. I said, no, we were not selling anything. Then they came back in and looked around our house to see if they could find more drugs. Since I had just set my groceries down in the kitchen, I offered them some carrot juice, but they kindly refused. Besides taking down our plants that were hanging to dry on the back porch, they got quite a kick out of the marijuana leaf that was in the frame on our wall. They took it out of the frame and confiscated it with the rest of the plants. They explained the procedures and assured me that if I did what they said, everything would be fine. It was obvious to them that I was very naive and they were successful in getting me to sign a paper confessing that we were growing marijuana. Then they informed me that they would be taking me to the Oakland jail offices to wait there for Thomas. They told me to leave a note on the door instructing him to come at once to the station downtown. As I drove away with them in the back of the police van, the paddy wagon, I felt confident that I would be released and could go back home later in the day. They must have been quite pleased with themselves that they had tricked me into believing them. They might have known that I would be spending at least one night in jail. On arriving at the city station, I had to fill out more forms and answer questions, particularly concerning Thomas. They already had the information about him, that he had no passport and visa. That was their real goal in coming to our house to see about the marijuana. The normal policy when arrested would be to make a phone call to someone for help. Because Thomas and I had made a pact not to inform my parents, that is exactly what I held to. So I calmly waited, assuming that Thomas would show up. But as evening came and there were no signs of him, the police said I would have to spend the night there. I was shown to a bed in a room with six other women. It was obvious that they had been there before. They were interested in my story, why a nice little white girl would be in the city jail. I told them all about our garden and my parents' reactions. The girls all agreed this must be a setup by my parents. They convinced me that my parents reported us to the police so that Thomas would be deported back to Germany. My first night sleeping in jail wasn't too bad because I was sure that I could go home the next day. In the meantime, Thomas had arrived home and saw my note taped on our door. He went straight over to some guy's house across the street who were involved in the drug scene. They told him that he should call my parents to help me and that he should disappear for a while. So much for our pact. He was worried about me, so he called my parents to tell them that I was in jail. You can imagine the tears and the anger they must have felt because they had warned Thomas that this could happen. And now it was their daughter who had been arrested. Thomas told me later that he spent the night in a nearby park. Since Thomas didn't show up at the Oakland station, this meant I would have to stay in jail. The next day, the police informed me that my boyfriend probably had split town and I was going to be transferred to the women's correctional facility in Santa Rita. Now I was worried because they told me if I signed a confession and didn't have a police record, I would be immediately released. I still didn't consider calling my parents, so I was transported with the other girls out in the country area to Santa Rita. At the check-in there, I was given a uniform dress and ushered to my space with a bed. It was in a large room for approximately 20 women. 
Later in the day, I was taken to the director's office to be questioned. She asked if I knew where my boyfriend Thomas was and why I didn't call my parents for help. Then she checked my arms to see if there were traces from heroin needles. She advised me to cooperate with them so I could be released as soon as possible. She seemed honestly concerned and didn't want to see me spending much time in there. I set myself to follow the plan Thomas and I had made and to make the most of a jail experience. I decided to fast rather than eat the unhealthy kind of food they served. In the evening, sitting on my bed, I found a Bible in the nightstand drawer. I read in one of the Gospels about Jesus, and it seemed to come alive to me. I sensed that Jesus was the light, and the words gave me comfort and hope in the midst of these strange circumstances. It was definitely a different experience compared to the time when I got a headache after reading the Aquarian Gospel book. The words in the Bible gave me peace, and I knew that I wasn't alone, that God was with me. I thought there must be a purpose for me to be in this place. I talked with some of the girls, and they told me horrible stories of abuse and why they got arrested. I almost felt bad that I had such a sheltered life. Yet, I didn't realize that I was also on a downhill road now because of following my boyfriend. Things had gotten continually worse for us, but I was completely blind to that reality. The next day, Friday, I was told there would be a hearing in the courthouse in Oakland. On arriving there, they put me in a room with a glass window divider and told me there was someone who wanted to talk to me. I had no idea what was going on when a very well-dressed man came in and greeted me as if he knew me. He explained that he was the lawyer my parents had hired to help me. I was totally shocked and confused. I assumed that what the girls in jail had told me must be true. My parents probably set the whole thing up because I was sure that Thomas would not have called them. Then he pulled out a photograph of Thomas and asked, Is this Thomas Van Doren? Then he said, If I would tell him where Thomas was, he would get me out of jail and make sure that I wouldn't have a police record. He said they would also help Thomas that he could go back to Germany and wouldn't have to be in jail for drug charges. I responded with determination to protect my boyfriend and told him that I would not cooperate with this plan. The crazy thing was, happening at the exact time in the halls outside of the courtroom, Thomas had arrived. He came to turn himself in. I don't know exactly what happened except that he was arrested there. So while he was being taken over to the city jail, I was called into the small hearing room. There sat my parents and their lawyer waiting for the judge to come in. They were paying for a lawyer and now I was convinced they were against me. It was such an intense situation. I think I was in a daze as I listened to the judge explain the case. I had to answer a couple of questions and I made sure that I didn't look over at my parents. The short hearing ended with a judge saying that I would not be released yet. This was the third day I would be driven back to Santa Rita to spend the weekend there. I had no idea what had just transpired with Thomas and that the reason they were keeping me in jail was because of him. The laws were strict concerning foreigners in America and this German boy had no passport and an expired visa and theft and drug charges looming over his head. 
So now Thomas and I both were in the same jail in Santa Rita. He was in the men's section for foreigners who were waiting for their cases to be heard. He told me later that they were all hard criminals and that he was afraid. He didn't know that he would soon be getting a visit from my dad. Here's a bit of backstory concerning my parents. Because I told their lawyer that I would not cooperate, they were forced to make a big decision. They would need more money if the lawyer should also help Thomas. They had a family discussion and prayer time to decide if they should use the money that they had saved for my sister's college. Of course, my dad was also in contact with Thomas's mother about the whole situation, but in those first few days, the decisions were up to him. My parents' lawyer would have to come up with a different strategy now in order to help both of us. He would try to get the drug charge changed to the lowest penalty, which was possession of marijuana rather than selling it. Thomas should have his long hair cut to make a good impression and go into the court promising the judge that he would not be involved with drugs anymore. If this worked, then the next step would be to get married to me, an American, and promise to be a responsible citizen. This would be the only way he could stay in the U.S. Plus, he would also need a sponsor that would vouch for him. On the Monday when I was released from Santa Rita, my parents came to pick me up and then Dad went over to the men's building to see Thomas. Thomas must have been very surprised to be called out into the visitor's area that day. There was my dad, whom he had had many times argued with, waiting for him to speak to him at the jail. At first, Thomas tried to be cool, but after hearing the facts, he realized that he was in big trouble. This was a turning point in their relationship because they both had to humble themselves. My dad told Thomas he was willing to help both of us, but a lot would hinge on Thomas being willing to cooperate and do everything the lawyer said to do. Thomas agreed to do that. So I drove home with my parents, listening to my dad tell us about his talk with Thomas. It was also very humbling for me going back to their house and knowing I would have to wait and hope things would work out. I could have gone to our place, but I didn't want to be there by myself. Thomas had to stay in jail for two weeks until his court hearing on Friday, June 23rd. This would be the first time I would see him again after our arrests. I went there with my parents and was really surprised to see him when he walked into the courtroom. I hardly recognized him. He had cut his hair. The procedure went as the lawyer had hoped. The first step was that Thomas was released from jail and was given a new hearing appointment concerning the drug charges. There would still be two to three more hearings, depending on each decision the judge would make. That was a big day as my parents drove us from the courthouse in Oakland back to our house. We had a short talk with them, and Thomas told them that he was really sorry for all the trouble he had caused. We promised to get jobs as soon as possible to help them pay back for the lawyer. We were relieved to be home again, but it was a bit uncomfortable knowing that the police had been there and gone through our things. Plus, I had watched them out in our garden digging up the beautiful marijuana plants. We had a lot to talk about, sharing with each other about our time in jail, which we both considered a learning experience. I had already written Thomas's mother about everything that had happened and told her that we were sorry to hurt them. 
I also wrote that I hoped Thomas had learned his lesson in taking the laws serious. Now we had two weeks' time until the next hearing on July 14th. That would determine if our drug charges would be lowered. We decided to go on vacation to clear our heads and to find our peace up in the mountains near the Sonora River. We packed up a few cooking things, sleeping bags, my camera, and Thomas's flute, and set out hitchhiking. Once we were up in the area on the freeway, I think we relied on our driver to know where we should get out to find the hiking trails. We set out following the Sonora River up into the mountains. We found beautiful places to stop and camp for the night. It reminded us of our experiences in Berlin, off in the forest by ourselves, hand in hand, following the trails. Now we were in California, enjoying the sunshine and blue skies. As we followed the path along the river, we were excited to find the perfect swimming hole. Holding hands, we jumped into the refreshing river together and then laid down on the warm rocks to dry off. Towards evening, we gathered wood and rocks, and Thomas made a nice fire pit where I could cook our dinner of brown rice. A couple of days later, we continued our hike, where we discovered a stunning waterfall. We sat down in the sun and just listened to the sounds of the water. It was as if all of our worries were being washed away that day. Similar to our Utah trip, we were all alone up there, and we loved sitting next to the open fire every evening, philosophizing about life, Thomas playing his flute, and then falling asleep as we watched the stars. We sensed that we were in tune with nature and the great cosmos. This time it was different, though, and I liked it, because Thomas had not brought any marijuana with him. The troubles we had just gone through had only drawn us closer together. This was another turning point in our journey. We could have never imagined what was around the corner for us. We knew things would change when we returned home, but for now we were content. One evening we started talking about the whole court situation and the decisions that might have to be made. I told Thomas not to worry if he did get deported. I was fine with going back to Germany with him. We were somewhat in awe, though, at the thought of getting married. We knew we were soulmates since the time we met in West Berlin. We had already lived together for two years and didn't feel the need to get legally married. Here's how the poet Thomas described our adventures along the river. We stayed awake late into the nights, singing and dancing and playing with the elves under the glow of the moonlight. When it was time to leave the river and hitchhike back to Oakland, we felt refreshed and ready for the next round of hearings in Oakland. Back in court, with the help of the lawyer again, Thomas was granted the lowest charge, which was possession of marijuana, which included two years probation. Now we would have to wait a couple more weeks until the big hearing with the immigration department. The judge would have to decide if he wanted to accept the request from our lawyer that Thomas would like to marry his American girlfriend and stay in the U.S. That hearing was on August 2nd, and the judge gave us the green light for the next step in this whole process, getting married. Once we had the marriage certificate, my parents would have to accompany us one more time into court to make everything final. Here's how that event went. We dressed up as best as we could, Thomas in a jacket and tie from my dad and his own dress pants that his mother had sent. 
I wore a short dress and shoes for my sister. We were trying hard to look normal and not like hippies. My mom took a picture of us out on the lawn before we all drove into Oakland. Once in the courtroom, our lawyer presented our papers and then Dad had to vouch for Thomas by giving a speech. It was a very serious and moving moment for all of us as we listened to my dad say that he believed that his new son-in-law, Thomas, was sincere in wanting to change, that he would not have anything to do with drugs and promised to be a good citizen and obey the laws. But even more important than that final day in court was our experience at the marriage office before that. The quickest date we could get for an appointment was across the bay at the Marin Civic Center on August 25, 1972. We planned to take the bus over there and didn't even consider inviting my parents or friends to join us. For us, it was only a formality, something that we needed to do. We didn't think of it as a special ceremony or that we should get dressed up. I do remember, though, what I wore, a pink Indian top with embroidery and little mirrors and my purple bell-bottoms. We took our Indian rings with turquoise stones that we had brought back from our Utah trip. I didn't even take my camera, which shows I wasn't thinking that this was anything important. On arriving in Marin and seeing the Civic Center, we were impressed by the architectural design of the building set up on a hill. We entered the long halls and looked for the room where we had our appointment booked. It was a simple room, and the Justice of the Peace introduced himself and the woman who would be the witness. Once he started talking, he launched into a beautiful speech about how serious the marriage vow was. He told us that this was an important decision and not something that should be done without counting the costs. He explained that love means giving and sacrificing for each other, and that marriage was a lifelong commitment. We couldn't help but be touched by his words as we listened and took to heart his message. Then we followed his instructions as we repeated the vows to each other. I take thee to be my wife and husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better for worse, for richer for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part. We exchanged our rings and kissed and signed the certificate and then thanked the man for the ceremony. We were totally overwhelmed when we left there. We had the sense that an invisible hand was directing our lives, but we didn't understand who that was. We were just happy and didn't realize that day that our lives would never be the same again. Our first year together in California had passed. Now we were married and truly enjoying the sunshine. In closing today, I am reminded again of the proverb by the wise King Solomon who wrote, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. I think you will enjoy seeing my photos of Thomas with short hair and our time camping along the Sonora River. Check them out on Instagram and my stories on Facebook. Bye for now.